We are today in part four of this series that we've been in for the last few weeks, The Scandal of Grace, which basically, if you've not been with us, what we're doing is taking the, uh, the genealogy, the family tree, the line of Jesus that's recorded in Matthew chapter one, and we're looking at the, some of those people in it, and the whole idea of this series is that uh, the family that Jesus came from is a picture of the family that Jesus came for. And uh, in many ways, the family that Jesus came from is seriously messed up. So we looked at Abraham, hero of the faith, messed up man. Last week, if you were here, we had, I'm not sure if fun's the right word, but we looked at the muck and the grime of Judah and Tamar. And if you didn't, uh, if you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to that because that's, that's a crazy chapter in the Bible. And that was a fun, fun few minutes that we had last Sunday. And so we've basically gone from the, the muck and grime of that to essentially a Disney fairy tale story today. All right, we kind of thought that's enough of that, although we'll weave some of that back in later as we go. But today we're looking at a peasant girl, really, who meets her Prince Charming, and uh, they fall in love, and they get married, and they live happily ever after. And I've literally just seen about three wives lean against their husband like that. And, and um, oh, man. <laughs> Let's see if we can change that by the end of this. No, we're skipping a few generations today. We're looking at the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth and the characters of of Ruth and and Naomi and Boaz. If you've got your Bible with you, Ruth comes just after the book of Judges. It's in, uh, flicking through, somewhere near the beginning. Book number eight, I think, of the Bible, all right? So, Judges, chapter one, verse one. No, not Judges, Ruth. In the days... That's another series, another time. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Let's just be real clear on what's going on here. Ruth's story is set, actually, in the time of the judges. The time of the judges was a really bloodthirsty, brutal part of Israel's history. And uh, Joshua, which is two books before this, ends with God basically saying the people of God are never actually going to be able to stay faithful to God. And guess what? They don't really. And Judges just follows the absolute mess of what happens, happens the, the cycle, if you like, of, of disobedience and then the consequences of that. When you disobey God, mess ensues and mess comes. And then the book of Ruth starts with Israel in an absolute state. Like things are really, really bleak. And Ruth is just like this brief moment of respite from the mess of the story of Israel. And it's a beautiful little book of hope. And actually, Ruth records the first time the word hope even is used in the Bible. Verse 1, let's carry on. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife uh, and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And we're first introduced to Ruth because verse three, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi with the two sons. And they, in verse four, take Moabite wives, Orpah or Ruth. Now our attention is immediately supposed to be drawn to this. Moabite wives. We're supposed to immediately kind of go, well, hang on a minute. What is going on here? Because these boys have married these two women who are pagan women, they're foreign women, they're Moabite women who worship pagan and foreign gods. And God has explicitly in Deuteronomy 7 and in other places said, that ain't on, don't marry them, don't have anything to do with them. And so we're immediately awoken to the fact this story is going one of two ways. This is going to be a story of judgment or it's going to be a story of grace. 
And about 10 years pass, and basically both the husbands have died. And so Naomi, herself without a husband, decides it's time to head back to her homeland. Because verse 6, she'd heard in the fields that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she tries to persuade her daughter-in-laws to leave her and stay in their own homeland. And Orpah says, okay. But Ruth says, no. Which immediately marks her out as someone quite remarkable. Because if a mother-in-law is asking her to come along and she says... Yeah, I'll come with you. You think, wow, something's up here. Verse 16. Some of the most beautiful human words in all of Scripture. Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Keep those verses in mind. We'll come back to them later. So Naomi is kind of accompanied by Ruth. She decides to head back home. She had previously gone into a foreign land. She'd left her homeland. And this gives you an idea of how messed up things were at the time because it was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. And there's a famine. Things are really, really messed up. So she leaves, seeks food. But actually, it doesn't work out so well for her. She suffers and she comes back to her own nation, not full, but empty. Verse 20, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And as we start chapter 2, we see that they're back. Two widows, no jobs, no real hope. Very vulnerable position. They've got no means of supporting themselves. And, and to be honest, not just vulnerable, they're in a dangerous position. But there is a little bit of hope. Because Naomi knows of a relative of her dead husband, Boaz, uh, of her dead husband, a guy called Boaz. And Boaz is one of those guys that if you're a man here today, you're supposed to love and hate in equal measure. You're supposed to love him because what an inspiration he is. You're supposed to love him because, wow, aspire, be like him, as we'll see in a moment. What a great guy. You're supposed to hate him because it's not just you reading this story, but your wife or your female significant other is also reading it and she's going to measure you by him. All right? And that ain't going to work out so well for you. But Boaz, he's this great guy. He owns this bunch of land. And Ruth goes and does what poor people did in those days. Verse 3, chapter 2. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Gleaning was just this way, really, in God's law of caring for the poor. Left the, leave the, cor- the edges of the field so the poor can come and help themselves and feed themselves. Also, if you, other rules, like if you drop some of the crop, you were supposed to not pick it up again so the poor could come in and actually be cared for. God has always been cared about and been passionate about the poor and his means of all li- looking after the poor has always been the generosity of his people. It's always been that way through the Old Testament and, and today God cares passionately about the poor And his means for working that out is that the people of God are generous with the things that they have. So we see that in the whole gleaning thing. The story then really now kicks in and begins to gather a pace. As Ruth goes out to pick up what the reapers left behind. And verse 3, she just so happened, just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Now, okay. I know this doesn't sound like it to us in a British kind of context here, but basically when, by saying that Boaz was a relative of theirs, it was kind of like a signal to a Jewish audience that romance was afoot. Now admittedly, I know that doesn't work in our culture. Hey, your cousin's here. Rom-com plot. That doesn't, that doesn't really work so much, but that's essentially what is going on in this moment. And it just so happened in this particular field, 
at this particular moment with this particular guy. And you're like, yeah, right. You know, if you ever, if, I, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but occasionally you have that moment where your wife chooses the film, all right, that you're watching. And so she chooses a film which is kind of of a, of a romantic variety. And you're sitting there and the whole plot twists on something just happening at this particular moment. And you're like, this is so ridiculous. This is so never going to happen. Like as if that would happen just like that, just in that moment. And you're just about to point this out to your wife and you turn to her to point out, who would even write this thing? Never mind who would watch this thing. And you turn to her and she's like, sniffing away. This is so beautiful. And you kind of go, how good is God, babe? (laughs) Jehovah Jireh, he provides. This is this moment, all right? This is one of those moments. You think, hey, really? This, at this time? Hey, one of the underlying themes of this whole book of Ruth, the whole story of Ruth, is God working through his sovereignty in the normal moments. He controls everything, the providence of God. There's no miracles in this story. God works through miracles, yes, of course. But God also works through divine, sovereign moments. There's a great big theme throughout this, the invisible hand of God of the providence of God working things out. And Ruth, just as an aside, is a real wonderful example to us. Because Ruth, trusting in the sovereignty of God, needs something and actually does something about it. You see, there's a danger of just going, I need this, I need that, something needs to happen. Well, God's sovereign, I'll just sit here and wait for it to happen. I'll just be really, really passive. The other danger, of course, on the other side of the fence is to fall slide really quickly into a whole thing. Well, forget God, I will make it happen. And Ruth doesn't fall into that trap. She trusting in the sovereignty of God, they all work things out, puts herself in a position of risk. She's invulnerable. She steps out. She takes a risk and trusts that God will, will work things for her. And she's prepared to work hard. And we see it works out pretty well for her. Boaz, what a guy. A man who protects and provides. Ruth says to him, can I glean in your fields? And he says, yep, come and gather what you need. Now, in this particular context, Ruth, as a, as a woman and as a foreigner... She's in a very weak and vulnerable position. The fields are really not a very safe place for a woman. They're a dangerous place to be. But Boaz protects her. Verse 9, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? This is like the first sexual harassment policy in the Old Testament. Boaz is basically to the blokes, don't touch her. And if you do, I've got a very big field and they will not find your body. That's basically what this statement is here. And in all, all joking aside, he is, he is a guy who uses his position and his influence to protect and defend. That's a lesson right there. Right now, right now in our news context, if only this was the prevailing attitude of all men in a position of authority and influence to have this action, how much better would the world be? Lesson right there. That's got nothing to do with what we're saying, but here we go. So Ruth gleans in his field and she heads home at the end of the day. And she has so much with her that Naomi slightly incredulously asks in verse 19, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi said to her, also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Now, we've got to work out what's going on here. Because in those days, if you were in debt, your property basically was deeded out for someone else to pay off your debt. Now, you could buy it back if you had enough money. And if you didn't have enough money, which obviously you didn't, 
somebody, a kinsman redeemer, somebody could come and pay back that debt for you and buy it back. And here's the thing. In order to be qualified as a kinsman redeemer, the first thing, they had to be the closest living relative to you. Couldn't just be anybody. It had to be the closest living relative to you. Then it had to be somebody who had the resources, who had enough money to be able to actually buy the pay off the debt. And it then had to be somebody who wanted to do it. They couldn't be forced into doing it. Boaz, he ticks all those boxes. He's a relative. He's wealthy. He's got, the, he's got the right, he's got the resources, and as we see here, turns out he's got the resolve as well. Naomi says to Ruth in chapter 3, verse 3, Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I'm sorry, what? Hey! Naomi uh, Rip says to Ruth hey pour some oil on yourself and go and wait until that bloke's had a few drinks and has lied down and then lift up the cover of his duvet and snuggle up next to his feet now <laughs> I know that for the last few weeks we've basically been saying we don't read this morally we read this theologically but and this is an example right here of why we don't read it morally I have a daughter if she ever covers herself in oil and goes and lifts up the duvet of any guy's feet and lies under there he won't have any feet left <laughs> This is, a, whoa. And then when verse seven, when Boaz had eaten drunk, we've got to remember here, this is, we're not reading morally, we're reading theologically. There's a lot, whole lot going on here. Old, tent, old covenant symbolism. Basically, is, this is a request from her to him, will you marry me? That's what's going on here. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he'd had a few, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Like, if you're looking for a husband, don't try this. And if you're looking for a wife, definitely don't try this. You're going to prison. But just picture the scene for a moment. Boy meets girl. Boy likes girl. Girl likes boy. Here we are. No one's there. No one's watching. No one will ever know. Lying under his cloak. The stars are beautiful. Night is overhead. We've had a few drinks, so we've got every excuse in the world. But Boaz, man full of integrity, man full of righteousness, does not take advantage. He does the right thing. Verse 11, he says, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is another redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. What a man of integrity. What a man of, of honesty. He doesn't take advantage. He doesn't abuse his position. He doesn't say, I've had a few drinks. I couldn't help myself. Purity and self-control for the sake of righteousness. He's not afraid to do the right thing. What a guy. Like, what a guy. And he's not afraid to do the right thing even beyond that particular moment because there's another guy who actually qualifies closer as a relative who's... who's actually first in line in the queue and his confidence and trust is not I will I will circumnavigate things it's God if this is your will you'll have your way and I trust you in it and we read in chapter four that he goes to the elders at the town gate he could have lost everything but his attitude is Jesus I'm trusting you I'm not going to try and make this happen myself I'm going to submit to you and so the other guy we don't even get his name he comes by and chapter four Boaz shrewdly negotiates with him and basically gets permission to redeem the land permission to redeem Ruth and Naomi and he gets the right legally and biblically to marry Ruth and finally they get married and it really is one of those happily ever after moments 
But here's the thing. That moment could have gone terribly, terribly wrong for Boaz. Because the other guy could have turned out and said, yeah, I'll have her. And Boaz would have lost out. I had my chance. I could have done everything and just had to run away with her. But he said, no, 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 because the right thing to do is this, and I'm going to trust God in it, even though the consequence of that means it might not work out as I want. So often we have a temptation. This is what I want, and I can only see this way of getting here. And if I trust God, it means I'm going to have to seemingly go that way, and I can't work out how it's going to get there. And surely God wants me to be happy, so I'm pursuing that thing. I'm just going to go there. Lesson right here for us is no trusting in God and He's working everything together for the good of those who love Him. And that might not necessarily turn out as you want, but it will turn out in the way which is right and good. Trusting in the sovereignty of God, trusting in His unfailing plan. We see here a character and characters in this story who submit to God. There are so many lessons here in this few short chapters so many points to make so many places we could go this is a love story this is a beautiful portrayal of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood this is a beautiful story of racial and ethnic diversity and harmony this is also an incredible story of the the sovereignty of God in display in action but above all this is a story of God's grace this is a story of redemption. That word is used in Hebrew about 23 times in these few short chapters. The unloved are loved. The poor are restored. The inheritance that has been lost because of sin is now claimed through the generosity of another. Bitterness becomes sweet. This is an incredible story of the grace of God. We see Naomi, whose story starts in darkness and starts in bitterness. She is without hope. She feels forgotten. We heard that this morning it's a story that for her starts with death she's lost her sons she's lost her husband but it's a story that for Naomi starts in death but ends in life she goes from barrenness to blessedness she starts the book forsaken sonless like with no real hope and she ends up as the great 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 grandmother of Jesus Christ and in chapter four we see Naomi holding her grandson Obed saying God's redeemed me and my family he's given me back my inheritance he's turned my bitterness into sweetness and in verses 14 and 15 these women looking on at her they say blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age this is a story of God's grace and it's the theme throughout the book of Ruth and it's right at the heart of the gospel and you know what is God's message to you today whoever you are however you walked in however dark it is however forgotten you feel however without hope you feel sweetness can come from bitterness and there is sign of hope in every moment in every story even in the darkest of places because our lives are not governed by ourselves they're controlled by a sovereign God who's a good God who loves his people there is hope here this is a story of God's grace to individuals but it's also a story of God's grace to nation too see the book of Ruth is this turning point in the book of Israel we started at the time of judges with chaos and mess and disobedience and everything in disorder and we end the book with Obed who's the father of Jesse who was the father of David starting chaos and we end with the arrival of David, this beautiful leader who will bring prosperity to the nation, who will be the leader that brings stability and order. You see, out of death comes life. This is a gospel story. See, naturally speaking for us, life starts with birth and it ends with death. 
That's what we're all going to face. There's a physical birth and a physical death. But for the Christian, we understand that really what's going on is that we're born in death, but our story ends in life. You see, when Ruth starts, Ruth starts with death and ends with a list of births, it ends with life because the Bible ends with resurrection. This here is a gospel story. And Ruth's inclusion in the family of Jesus, this is where we're going to just focus these next few moments, is a picture and a reminder of this incredible gospel story. And it's an incredible picture of the stunning depth and beauty of the grace of God. That what starts in death always ends in life. That what is bitter and messed up turns to sweetness. And if we read this story as a simple boy meets girl, Disney princess, Cinderella kind of story, I mean, it's good to read it at that level, but we're missing out on the stunning depth of it all. You see, Ruth is a widow. And in many ways, being a widow, she's kind of used goods. And she's poor as well. That's why she's gleaning in the fields. All right, she's having to rummage around on the edge of a field for food. She's a widow and she's poor. But worse than that, she's a foreigner. Like worse than that, she's an outsider. And not just any foreigner, we're told she's a Moabite. You see, when Boaz looks at her in the field and he asks her workers, who's that? In chapter 2, they don't reply with, well, her name's Ruth. I mean, she looks a bit rough, but she'll scrub up really well and she'll be a great marriage material if you can bring her into your house. No, no, no. They say to her, literally say, she's a Moabite who came from the country of Moab. They say it twice. And they're not saying it twice because they're worried that Boaz is a little bit slow. They're making a point. She's a foreigner and not just any foreigner. She comes from the land of Moab. She's a Moabite. Now, this is where we've been talking about this last few weeks. We've got to step back for a moment. And every time you're reading Old Testament stories, you need to read it in the context of the much bigger story to really, truly appreciate and understand what's going on. And to understand this, this is is so significant to get this. She's a Moabite. Now, the nation of Moab, they're like the worst of the worst. They're like the sworn enemies of the people of God. They're a terrible people. There are people who came about, you can read all about it. It's a really sordid, horrible story in Genesis 19 where Lot has sex with his daughter and have a son called Moab and from him comes the nation of Moabites. Now they're terrible people. There are no Moabs left anymore. They've been wiped out as a people. None of you are sitting here getting offended by me saying you're a terrible person. And if we've missed that, you're the last remaining descendant of the Moabs. I'm really sorry about that. But they're real baddies. Like properly the worst of the worst. They're the guys who refused to give the people of God bread and water in the desert. They're the guys who hired Balaam to attack the, en- the people of God. The- they really are the enemies of Israel. And so avoiding their women was a real big deal. And it's, I can't stress this enough because this is, this is where we, it becomes so scandalous for us, this story. Where it takes on such depth and meaning is it's so important to understand the depth of feeling of hatred towards these people, the seriousness of it. Because then it helps us understand the shock factor of how Boaz treats Ruth. And when you get the depth of this, what it means to be a Moab woman, the story of Ruth suddenly comes alive. There's a story in Numbers 25 that illustrates just how big a deal this is. I'll be honest with you, it's not a pleasant story. That's a reoccurring theme as you read the Old Testament, of course. But Numbers 25, the people of Israel are a place called Shittim and the men begin to have sex with Moabite women and at the same time they begin to worship Moabite gods and eat their food and bow down to idols. It's not going well. And in Numbers 25 verse 3, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel 
And God speaks to Moses and he says, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses, verse five, says to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to these foreign gods. And we read a little bit later, 24,000 people were killed. Wow. And right in the midst of this absolute telling off, shall we say, from God and then from Moses, an Israelite man and a Moabite woman completely defiantly in the sight of the congregation walk right through the middle of the camp and into their tent to have sex. And a guy called Phineas, who's so angry about this, in verse 7 of Numbers 25, it says, he saw it, rose, and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after them into the chamber, their tent, and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. This is like a really, to be honest, gross story. But it's there because it's meant to be a significant warning to the people of Israel. Moabite women don't go there. No, 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 no. Don't have anything to do with them. They're dangerous. Moabites are not just foreigners. They're also the enemies of God. And this is why, fast forward right now and back into the Ruth story, this is why we're so shocked that Ruth, who's a Moabite woman, this is who she is. She's from that clan. She knows all of this. She's supposed to be so shocked that she asks Boaz if she can glean in his fields. Like, be careful and then we're even more shocked that he says yes and Ruth is too and this understanding this background this big context makes her response more understandable she says can I glean in your field and he says yes help yourself and verse 10 she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner she shouldn't even be there She shouldn't even be allowed into the nation, into Israel. And she definitely shouldn't be allowed to marry into the family of God. And Boaz, who knows all this, looks at her in verse 12 and says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In Ezra chapter 9, there's this absolute ban on the intermingling and intermarriage with the people of God and the Moabites. He said, no, 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 you can't do it at all. Unless a Moabite is prepared to, uh, to reject all of their heritage, all of the way they've lived and turn 180 degrees round, degrees round and reject that and turn away from it and now become everything that it is to be a Jew and the people of God. That's the only way in for them. What Ruth, that's exactly what Ruth does. Back to one, Ruth chapter 1 verse 16 for a moment. She says, I'm going to reject all of this because your people will be my people, more God will be my God. You see the parallels of what's going on. I'm turning away from all of this. I'm going to walk away from it, 180 degrees, and I'm going to walk into that where have we seen this story before. And Boaz says to her, you've come here desperate. You're not trusting in anything of your own, your own success, your own past, your own family, your own heritage, your own any of that. You've come here desperate. You've come to the God of Israel to seek refuge, to seek favor, to seek help and comfort. And this God, he is not going to let you down. He is not going to reject you. Yes, by rights, you are an outsider. You're an enemy of God, but you come seeking refuge and he will respond to you and he will rescue you and he will look after you. Jeremiah 33.3 says, call on me, says the Lord, and I will answer you. Turn from that which you put your trust in so far, that which the way you've lived, and turn to me and I will come and I will rescue you. And Boaz says to her, come, sit down and eat with me. 
Let me feed you. Let me water you. Let me provide for you. And then he says to his young men in verse 15, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. You see, God's law was always set up that she was allowed to eat around the edges. She was allowed to have a little bit. But Boaz says, listen, you came for a little, but I'm going to give you more than you ever dare dream of or imagine. You came here looking for scraps in the soup kitchen, but I want to lavish you with a feast in the banqueting hall. And then he goes even further. And he ends up marrying her and saying to her, all that I have is yours. You bring nothing to the table, but everything that I have, I give to you. And so now everything is yours. You don't earn it. You haven't deserved it, but I give it to you anyway. See, Ruth comes to Boaz knowing she's broken, knowing she's got no hope, knowing she's got nothing to bring, nothing to offer, knowing she can never earn it, knowing that she's not entitled to it, but she wants a family, she wants hope, she wants a place of refuge, a place at the table, and Boaz says, it's all yours. And here's why this story is so amazing. We are Ruth. We're Ruth. We are not Boaz in this story. It's not a moral story of how we're to look out for the poor and help the poor and and find a place for the poor. Although, of course, we're supposed to do all of that. It tells us that elsewhere in Scripture. We ain't Boaz here. We are Ruth. And this is what makes this story so stunningly beautiful. This is why this is a gospel story because Ephesians 1, 12 reminds us of this truth. Unless you're sitting here today and you're a direct descendant of the tribe of Judah, like ethnically, like you were born an ethnic Jew, unless that's you here today, you are an outsider. You're a Gentile. What Ephesians 1, 12, you are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We're the foreigners. We're the outsiders. Now, some of us in this room know what it is to be a foreigner and an outsider. You know what it feels like. You've been in that position. You are in that position. You live constantly aware of that. But most of us, if we've been born and raised in this nation or lived here long enough, we don't know what it is to be an outsider anymore. We think we're the insiders. And ever they're foreigners, and this is a message, yeah, we've got to look after foreign people. No, 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 no. We're the foreigner. We're the outsider. Naomi, in this story, she's the insider. She's the actual person, person from Israel. She's the Jew. We're Ruth, who is the foreigner. Biblically speaking, the center of the world does not revolve around us in this nation. And we kind of think it does. I mean, even if we don't sing this, we're like, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the world. I have to sing. It's a thing every week. <laughs> That's what we think. No. Biblically speaking, Jerusalem's at the center of the earth. We're some far off island that no one's ever heard of or cares about. Literally, we're not mentioned anywhere. No one, the UK, it's a great place. No, it's just some island beyond the islands that we know about, beyond the islands that we care about, somewhere in the distant far off, somewhere maybe possibly. We're those people. There's no way in. We're in some far off place no one's heard of. We're the people on the outside that no one cares about, that no one wants in. There's no way in for us. We have no rights. By right, we have no claim and no inheritance. We bring nothing to the table but God. He wants Gentiles and he wants foreigners in his family. And so he makes a way, Jesus. And we're not just foreigners. We're also enemies but Jesus, Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are recognized, shall we be saved by his life? You see, listen, we are Ruth and Boaz is, our, is Jesus. He's our redeemer who has the right to do it. He has the resources to do it. He has the resolve to do it because God wants you this morning in his family. 
That's the message of Ruth. He wants you. He goes out of his way to pay off the debt for you. He goes out of his way to call you by name. He goes out of his way to say, yes, by rights, you're a foreigner, you're an outsider, you've got no right, you've got no claim, you've got no nothing, but I want you in my family. He looks on us and he says, listen, foreigner, listen, outsider, those with no claim to the promise of God, those with nothing to bring, those with nothing to add, I have made a way for you to be reconciled back to me. He's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who wants to do it. And he's the only one who has does it. And he says to us today, come and eat with me. Come and stay safe with me. Let me protect you. Let me provide you with shelter. I will keep you safe. And he goes on more and he says, all that I have now is yours. And so you come hungry and thirsty and I will give you an abundance. You come with nothing and I will give you everything. You come as an outsider and I will make you part of my family and so what's our response to be well it's like Ruth wow wow who am I that you would look on me and favor me I have nothing I bring nothing and yet you delight in favoring me with everything And so I bring my mess and my poverty, just like Ruth brought hers to Boaz. Hers was physical, mine's spiritual. And he says to her, what's yours is mine. And so God, spiritually speaking, says to me today, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet became, for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might, spiritually speaking, become rich. I bring my mess and my poverty. And he says, it's all yours. I bring my fear, just like Ruth brings fear to Boaz. She's scared for her future. That's why she said, please protect me. And he says, fear not, you're mine. I bring my fear and God says to me, Isaiah 43, 1, fear not, for I have called you by name. You are mine. And I come hungry, just like Ruth did to Boaz. And, and he says, eat. And she says, it says she ate until she was satisfied. I come to God and he says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You can't afford it and I will give it to you gladly. He has brought me into his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. And just as Boaz said, come and eat some bread and dip your morsel into the wine, in the same way Jesus speaks to us and he he says, come, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. And he says, come, drink of it, this cup, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wow. We're going to end this morning. We're going to take communion together. There's an invitation as... As, as Boaz says to Ruth, come and, and eat from this cup and come and drink from this. Eat for this bread and come and drink from this cup. Jesus says today, I have made a way for you to come and be part of the family. I have come made a way for you to no longer be alienated from the commonwealth, to no longer be a stranger, to no longer be an outsider, to no longer be someone who has no rights. Now, because of Jesus Christ, nothing you did, everything he did, you are now included in this family. And our response is, wow, Jesus, you have welcomed me. You have accepted me. You have redeemed me. You have taken my sin. You've taken my shame and you have washed me whiter than snow. You have removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. You have welcomed me into your family you have made a place for me and so I say thank you Jesus 
And I say, thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness that is better than life itself. I thank you, Lord, that there is no place for me until you made a way. And now you have made a way. And what a way you have made. And now all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And all of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And because my life is hidden in him, they all come my way too. And I no longer have to stand on the outside looking in and saying, please, oh, that's no good. I say, God, you have included me in as a son, as a daughter, forgiven and free, loved with a forever love because we are a forever people. No longer forgotten, but found in Christ Jesus. No longer without hope, but now full of the glory of the hope of heaven, which is sure and certain, not maybe someday, possibly could it be, but definitely certainly it shall be for the glory of God in Christ.